Welcome to the Digital Story Experience, a podcast made by university student storytellers. Tune in and indulge as guests share their stories based on a different topic in each episode. Enjoy the podcast where not one story is the same as the other. Emily Dickinson, poem number 314. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. To have hope is to want an outcome that makes your life better in some way. It not only can help make a tough present situation more bearable, but also can eventually improve our lives because envisioning a better future motivates you to take the steps to make it happen. Whether we think about it or not, hope is a part of everyone's life. Everyone hopes for something. It's an inherent part of being a human being. Hope helps us define what we want in our futures and is the part of the self-narrative about our lives we all have running inside our minds. I'm Merlene, and I'm interviewing my mother-in-law, Jeanette Flesher, on the topic of hope. Jeanette, what comes to mind when you think of hope? I just always think of Ben and things that applied to him. He was my husband. He's been gone 20 years. We were married for 31 years before he died. He was the eternal hopeful person, although he never said that he was hoping for something. He just lived it. Sometimes every day just to get up and face the day shows that you have hope in that day. I think it was more a case of showing it in his life than ever articulating it. He was a farm boy and he loved the farm. He was the oldest child of five. He intended to be forest ranger. That was where his interests lay in hunting and doing things in the bush and all that sort of thing. But because of the times, I guess, and they weren't well off, uh, when he finished high school, he took the temporary education degree because it was handy. So he was equipped with a six-week teaching certificate. And he went out to a country school in Bear Canyon. And he quite loved that because it was kind of wilderness living. And then he went down to Alder Flats to teach. And when he was there in the fall, he got polio. In Alderflat, he had some friends come and he was taking them. He was the big guide going to take them hunting. And he got sick and the public health nurse took him into Wetaskiwin to the hospital. And that was it. He was immediately put into an iron lung there in Wetaskiwin. What is an iron lung? Okay, it's a, a monster machine and you're in it and only your head is sticking out of it. And it's uh, artificial lungs and it breathes for you. And it has to be uh, plugged in electrically. Ladies and gentlemen, that sound that you hear is the air being forced into the lungs so that the patient can breathe. If anyone should pull the plug, stopping that air, the patient would die within a minute. 
you're completely in that machine and it does the breathing for you. And I think it's pretty scary for people. And you don't, only your head is sticking out one end of it and there's kind of a rubber flange around the neck. And then in the side, there are a couple of holes with uh, rubber again on those holes. And the nurses could put their hands in those holes and tend to what they needed to do inside the lung. But you were never out of it. And then they decided they needed to move him to Edmonton. So somebody got together with a truck and a generator and one of the nurses came with him and they transported him in the back of this truck in this old Wetaskiwin model of a iron lung and moved him up to Edmonton. And then his whole life after that was impacted by the polio. He was a quad, which meant all four limbs were affected. But he was fortunate in that he did have that teaching degree. That then was his working life after that, was teaching at Glenrose. What year was the polio epidemic in Alberta? It was very bad between 51 and 53. And I think it was 52 that Ben got it. And it was striking adults, which was really surprising because ordinarily it had been infantile paralysis and it was mostly children that it would affect. And it made the news quite dramatically because so many adults were getting it. Must have been scary times. Does it remind you of? No, it was just surprising. But no, it wasn't anything like this for public awareness. It'd be interesting to know how many were affected by it. According to the Calgary Herald, there were 266 cases of polio, with 12 deaths in 1953. As of May 22, 2020, according to Alberta Health, there have been 6,768 cases of COVID-19 in Alberta, with 132 deaths. Certainly not the numbers that it is now. It was quite frightening to come out of the lung because it was... Um, secure. And he was only 21 years old at the time, young man. And he was just starting as a teacher, not intending to stay as a teacher, but he, that was the thing that he could, could do and could earn a living at. But he was very pleased because he hadn't needed a trach. The iron lung had been enough and it was very scary to come out of it, but he could breathe without a trach. And that was something that um, had always been happy for him. But later in life, when he got a pneumonia, he had to have an emergency trach. And that was probably the hardest thing for him to do, was to realize that he had managed all these years without one, and now he had to have the trach. Right. So I'm seeing why you think of him when you think of hopeful, when you think of the word hope, yeah. because <laughs> we're talking about someone who really was struck down in the prime of their life and is thinking of ways he's lucky, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So you met him at the Glenrose Hospital, is that right? Yes. And you were both working there as teachers and you fell in love, obviously. Well, we worked together seven years before we were married. So it certainly wasn't a bolt of light out of the blue. The idea was more or less that we 
worked well together and we might as well make a life together. It wasn't a great big romantic sort of thing. Slow and steady, I guess you would say. We just kind of did because it was seven years that we were working very closely together. But we did decide to get married. But I guess maybe there were times like there was a little chain on his chair and you could always hear him coming down the hall because you could hear this little chain clinking. And I do remember listening for that sound of him coming down the hall. So maybe there was more to it than I, than I gave credit to it. I seem to recall you once telling me that you would hear him coming down the halls and you would hear that sound of the chain and your heart would go pitter patter, pitter patter. Well, maybe it did a little pittering and pattering. <laughs> um, and you had a, a good marriage and you had two sons. Yes. And we just lived as if, we just lived as if there wasn't a problem. Do you think being married and having children was a lot of cause for hope for him? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he used to write for the journal. He was the TV commentator. He always liked writing. And he had written his story one time. And it came to the place where he was married and had a family and a job. And his last sentence was, a taxpayer at last. And that was always his goal. He said he couldn't understand people that didn't like paying taxes because he said, you know, you're just so lucky to have a job and to be able to pay taxes. He certainly enjoyed the family life and the kids and the, the life of ordinary people, I guess is what it was. We did, we did what people did. It's an interesting contrast. I mean, most people, when they think of someone who is living as a quadriplegic, they don't think of the word hope. They think of the word despair or hopelessness. But when I asked you about hope, you immediately thought of Ben. Oh, yeah. yeah. Never despair. Never. And he had a lot of friends. He never minded asking people to, you know, he'd, he'd have a... A filing system in his brain and every time he met somebody he'd say and what do you do and they'd say oh I'm a plumber and so that would get filed away and so he always had people that he could ask to come and do and they were always happy to do things for him because he was a genial guy and <laughs> never despair how can we deal with the situation as it is not mourn or begrudge the fact that it is and just deal with it the way it is. Just fix it. Yeah. 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 Do what you can. A problem solver. Yes. Yes. And a networker. Absolutely. Are you hopeful? I guess I would say I'm a hopeful person. Yeah. What year were you born? 33. 1933. So this is the middle of the Great Depression. Yes. You live through World War II. Yep. And this had a big impact on your life. Yes, I remember it well. You lived through the polio epidemic. And it wouldn't have had any effect on me except for Ben. Like it didn't affect lifestyles of people the way that this one does now. What does this era feel like, like this time we're in right now in terms of hope or hopefulness? Does this feel like a hopeful time? It feels like a time of change and a permanent change. 
right now feels hopeful in some ways and not in other ways. Can you think of a time or an era that felt more hopeful than now? The years after I uh, got my teaching certificate, you know, the world was your oyster. You go where you want, you name it, you can go, you can have a job. Just choose what you want. Go where you want in the world. If you're adventurous enough to to save up your money and go pack, packing in Spain, go for it, you know. And I think it was a very hopeful time. And you think of people starting businesses, you know, moving and shaking, and uh, they prospered and did really well. And I would say that that was a very hopeful time because the war was over and the future was bright and people were living again. And I'd say that was a very hopeful time. Hmm. Do you remember a time that felt less hopeful than this, this time right now? No. I think we basically got a character or a personality or whatever that comes with us. And I think that's our go-to place when the, um, when the crunch comes. I think that you kind of go to your basic personality. We, we were mentioning the Queen of England's address oh, yeah. to the public before, and her main message was... While we have faced challenges before, this one is different. This time we join with all nations across the globe in a common endeavor, using the great advances of science and our instinctive compassion to heal. We will succeed, and that success will belong to every one of us. We should take comfort that while we may have more still to endure, better days will return. Do you think that's true? Oh, yes. Yeah. I do think there's going to be change for sure. But life prevails and youth must have its way. And there'll, no, no, definitely it, it, it will be brighter for sure. And some of the pressures will be off. They certainly will be brighter. I think it, it can't be otherwise. interviewing my friend Jenna on the topic of hope. I've known Jenna for a long time. We work and go to school together, so we see each other almost every day. This is her story. What do you think of when you hear the word hope? I think of a struggle before the other side. I think hope has to come from a place of struggle to really understand what it means. Can you tell me in as much or as little detail as you want about a story of how hope has impacted your life? Um, essentially the past three, four years of my life has been a constant struggle of hope. It was October of my grade 12 year and my dad had a stroke and I was the first responder to everything. And I never really like dealt with it because I wasn't the center of attention at that point. Obviously, it was meant for my dad to be taken care of and making sure he was okay. And people would always ask about him, which is great. 
And so I kind of got over it. It was not a great week or two of my life, but you know what? It passed and he's healthy and we're good. And then it was January and my grandpa died of a stroke. And that one hit harder because I was like, it was the second outcome of like what could have happened to my dad. But once again, I didn't deal with those emotions properly. And so um, I kind of like buried them for the remainder of grade 12 and I moved on. And then first year university sucked. It was so much more than I ever anticipated. I was a good high school student. So I had these expectations for myself going into like university being like, oh, I got this. Like, I want to be a nurse. I want to do this. I know what I want to do with my life. And then I got into university and I was like, oh my goodness, I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I hate all my classes. I hate everything about it. I am struggling. I just, it was awful. It was like, when I think back to my first two, two and a half years of university, I hated it. Like, it was some of the darkest periods of my time. I remember sitting in my sociology class where I had my first panic attack. And I remember just being like, I don't, like, I felt like I was dying. Like, that's how, like, consumed I was with anxiety and just nerves and everything. And it was, it was, I, like, I remember that day being, like, like, I, I genuinely felt I was dying. Like, that's how scared I was. And so, obviously, September 2017 is when I started school. And I think every day after that was it was just bad it was I couldn't keep up with assignments I didn't understand anything so I was really hard on myself for being for not asking for help and I think that played into a lot of me delaying asking for help for my mental health and then um I I think it was January or something I got a concussion I fell down the stairs on the Strathcona County bus um so I laugh at it now but <laughs> that time it sucked I was already so down and then getting something on top of it just to like push me down further it was it was not good I had to take time off of work and at that time like work was like the light at the end of the tunnel of the day so I I've told so many people this but like my job as a swimming instructor was like everything I would have such a bad day and I had the kids at the end of the day to be like to make me smile or something they were just the kids were just the best distraction for me at that time and they honestly the kids also helped me from like ever hurting myself because of obviously our uniforms are bathing suits so you can't hurt yourself. I never wanted a kid to ask me like, oh, teacher, what's that on your arm or what's that on your leg or anything. I never wanted to have to make up a lie to a kid that wasn't fair to them. For that, like, I'm really thankful that my job was there because I don't have any physical scars. So that's kind of like a nice reminder, but I have obviously the emotional scars of that time in my life. Um, and I also, like, there's so many times where I was, like, I just, like, I can't do this. Like, I can't 
keep going with things I can't. I was so ready to give up. I had honestly like nothing really left in my life that I felt was worth living for. I hated school. I had lost a bunch of friends since high school. It was just a lot. And obviously the concussion didn't add, didn't help. But again, it came down to the kids being like, I never wanted them to be like, oh, where's teacher? And then having a sub being like, oh, she's sick. But meanwhile, I wasn't even there. And so I never, ever wanted that for the kids. So like they were like little signs of hope for me like they had such a like they were so happy and like even though they were kids like it was enough hope for me for like one more day like oh like little Susie is this happy maybe I'll be ha that happy one day so like that helped I think it was April of 2018 where I was like okay something's wrong like I'm not okay and I had like one clear day where I was like, you know what, I'm struggling. I've known my doctor since I was born. I'm sure I can go talk to her. So I booked an appointment like behind my parents' back because at that time my mom had a very negative opinion on mental health. I also never wanted to disappoint them. And so I went to my doctor's office and, and it was the first time in a long time that I felt like like, recognized that I was actually feeling these things, and, like, they were valid, but she was like, have you told your parents? And I was like, oh, God, no, like, that's the last thing I want to do, and she's like, okay, well, I'll tell them, so she essentially told them everything, and then I had the conversation that night with my parents of what exactly I was going through, and so I would say, like, yeah, April 2018 was, like, one of the most important months of my life because it was the month where I was like I started finding what I needed to be happy my degree right now is political science and a double minor in economics and French and me finding my degree and my passion for politics and everything going on in the world was I think also a really really important moment in my life because that was the first time I was like I finally feel like I found who I meant to be and who and what I want to do and it was one of the first moments where I was like like school doesn't have to be this like epitome of sadness which which it was every time I went and walked into the doors it was it was just sadness all over this past year was my first full year in political science and everything about this year was amazing. My grades reflected how happy I was and how much I changed as a student and as a person. I found something that I love, something that is worth me fighting for and worth like just waking up the next day, which I never used to have. So between like school and finding what I wanted to do finding like true friends and confiding in a, essentially a stranger but I've known her for 20 years and finally coming clean to my family things started to look up and I finally started seeing 
the light at the end of the tunnel. It was a long struggle, but the hope that came out of it and the hope that I feel every day now is, I would say, worth it. I would go through it all again if I knew I could be this happy. It was a long journey, a lot of tears, clearly. And uh, <laughs> where I am now, I am so incredibly, incredibly thankful. I feel so much gratitude for everything that I went through, despite the struggle. If you could say anything to someone who was in that position that you were in before, to give them hope, what would it be? I think I would really just suggest, like, listening to what you need and ignoring the expectations of others. Expectations need to change based on what you're going through in your life. And so my expectations during that, like, year changed from, oh, like, I want to do good in school to I need to take care of myself and I need to be healthy and I need to be happy again. And so... I think my biggest piece of advice would just be like, you need to listen to what you need and not what you want to need. Hope isn't easy, but it is achievable. I'm Kelsey, and today I will be interviewing Lisa Sargent. When I think of hope, I like to think of someone who practices having hope in an everyday life, someone who wants to instill that hope in others, someone who can choose to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Lisa is a paralegal who works with wills and estates at a downtown law firm. Her approach to her job helps others who are struggling to find hope during an unsettling time. Hello, listeners. Today we are doing an episode on hope. And I am joined with Lisa. Hi. Glad to have you here. Now, one of our first questions for you is, hope is a very different emotion to everybody. So what does hope mean to you? I think hope is like light. The, if you didn't have hope in your life, then everything just seems dark. I agree. Has there ever been any times where you feel that without hope, you wouldn't have made it through? Well, I think everybody in their lives have periods of darkness. Um, it's knowing that there will be light around the corner that makes you get up every day and carry on. Why is having hope so important for you? Well, hope is important for everyone. If you didn't have that light around the corner, life would be dark and you wouldn't feel like getting out of bed in the morning. Very true. Are you, during this COVID time, and there a lot of people are losing hope and feeling very hopeless, how have you maintained your hope? I think it's interesting how everybody has gone inward but found solace in their privacy. I think that people are finding ways of coping by cleaning their houses, spending time with their immediate family, learning to do new skills. I think people are, it slowed people down 
to be able to really focus on things that normally they wouldn't be able to. All right. So to you, is hope essentially a religious idea or can anyone practice hope? No, I wouldn't say it's primarily a religious idea. I believe that um, religion is a way that people, um, those are people's belief systems that they use to go through their day-to-day lives. Um, people have different ways of coping with their stresses in life, and um, this uh, pandemic has as I said, brought people back into the house again and they are isolated and they are trying to find ways of um, uh, dealing with the day-to-day stresses of life. Uh, The day-to-day stresses that they had before the pandemic are now compounded by maybe perhaps losing your job, Um, you know, kids not being in school. Uh, there's uh, things that have definitely uh, added on to the pile. What's to you is the nature of hope, and what do we as human beings place our hope? Well, I think that's an abstract concept is what the nature of hope is, but I think hope is different for everybody, as I said before. I think hope is essentially lightness. Hope is wanting to get out of bed in the morning. Hope is trying new things. Hope is meeting new people. Hope is sunshine on your face. It's just brightness. During this COVID-19 pandemic, many people are struggling to find a sense of hope and they're feeling fairly hopeless. And how have you adapted during the pandemic? And how, what would you say to people who are um, struggling during this time to see the light? I would say personally, I haven't really, uh, it hasn't really affected me as much as others. I haven't um, lost my job. I am working from home, but I have actually come to find that I like that. So that's been a positive. Um, Also, I have found that I am more of a homebody than I actually thought that I was. So that really hasn't bothered me either. The lack of Uh, being able to just go to a restaurant or go to a movie, do the things, go to the gym, do the things that I would do on a day-to-day basis um, has been a little challenging. And, um, but, you know, you, you adapt, you find movies to watch at home, you find things that uh, entertain you at home. And um, you just carry on. For the people that have lost their jobs, uh, that are alone, that aren't able to see their families, um, you know, social media has been a wonderful thing. If this had have happened, you know, 20 years ago, it would have been a greater disaster because you wouldn't have been able to reach out and, and, um, and communicate with your loved ones. Um, you wouldn't have been able to work out at home. So in that way, we're blessed. And in that way, you can find hope because thank goodness it happened in today's society. Definitely. I know as a soon-to-be McEwen graduate, I have hopes for the future and I have hopes for what my career looks like. And I feel like having that hope is 
acts as a driving force for working so hard in my classes and um, striving to get my degree. Now, do you think that hope also acts as goal setting and can help people um, achieve their dreams by hoping for and manifesting what they truly want? Oh, for sure. If you didn't have the hope to start with, why would you, why would you even be trying to get an education or try and reach out for that job? I think the people that are in the greatest despair are the ones that uh, feel like there's no future, that there's no path forward. So on a personal note, what are some things that you hope for in the future? Well, I hope that through all of this upheaval, that people do find peace and are able to uh, maybe not have life go back to the way that it was before, but find a new normal. So speaking as a person who has struggled with anxiety um, for about a lot of different things in my life, I know that I have always tried to turn to having a faith or having hope that things will turn out. And um, it's almost acted as a like you said earlier, like a light at the end of the tunnel when things seem very dark. Now, in your life, have you ever experienced dark times that you could only solely rely on hope? Uh, I have definitely had dark periods in my life where I don't know if I was solely relying upon hope. I was thinking that there would be no way to find the light and... Um, I can honestly say that, you know, some situations are harder than others, but um, for the most part, I can say that you do get through the other side if you believe that there is a door that will open and you'll be able to walk through. Mm -hmm. And that's very fitting for your job. You work as a paralegal in Wills and Estates for a law firm downtown and you help those uh, struggling with the death of a loved one or um, a a person in their family and you help them find hope uh, during that unsettling time and how can you speak to how that hope helps them in their situations? Well I think that um, it's not uh, it's not an easy path to navigate when uh, somebody dies and you have to finish the the paperwork so to speak I mean it's a it's not as easy as just somebody writing a will there it's a complicated process and that process can be very overwhelming for somebody that doesn't know what they're doing and to be able to help them through that so that they can put their mind to other things is very gratifying at times and the same goes for like drafting the documents for people when they are a lot of people find it kind of depressing to do a will because they're thinking that if they do it, they're talking about death and they're focusing on that and it somehow is a negative thing. But um, I'd say for the most part, um, people get through after they've done their documents and and it's one less thing that they need to worry about Right. because everything is in order. Right. All right. Thank you so much for your time and your input today during this interview. I truly appreciate you answering all the questions. And I also appreciate how optimistic and hopeful you are. And I feel like we could all adopt that mentality into our everyday lives.
being hopeful. It's important. And with COVID-19, now more than it's been in a long while. Today, a conversation with Russin, a man who, along with his family, adopted a puppy right as COVID-19 hit. So, Russ, I'm interviewing you. Topic of my podcast is hopeful. Hopeful. And, uh, Russ, I've known you for 20 years now, and it took you 20 years to get a puppy uh, named Charlie. Right. When did you get Charlie? When? Yeah. March 20th. Was it a coincidence that that was kind of when COVID people were being forced to, you know, shelter in place? Was that a coincidence? It was not a coincidence. We were actually planning on getting a dog for a while now because my son, who's currently eight, almost nine, wanted the dog. So we were researching dogs, investigating dogs. At around when COVID hit, we were actually on a wait list for four months with a breeder who was going to have a litter and get us a dog. But uh, during COVID, we were all home and we knew we weren't going anywhere for a while. And we thought this is actually the best time to get a dog because you have to take time off work when you get a dog because you have to train them and get used to them. And it's kind of like having a new kid at the beginning. So we just thought that, you know what, this is actually a really good time to pull the trigger because we're all home and kind of need something to, you know, strange times. So something as a little pick me up, we thought maybe a puppy would help with that. And so, yeah, we, I got online and I, I found a, current breeder who had one puppy left and she said he was available right away so we already knew we wanted to have a niece and so we searched for it and as luck would have it there was one dog left and it last in the litter and she was willing to give him up right away so I called on Thursday and I picked him up on Friday it's a Havanese okay it's a smaller dog it's uh when we got him he was seven pounds um at one year, he'll be fully grown at about maybe 12 to 14 pounds. So he's a real pick-me-up, pick eh? Uh, when you're kind of... Pick-me-up, yes. First, we were like, what did we get ourselves into? Because um, I found myself up at 2 in the morning and 5 in the morning taking Charlie outside in minus 20 weather so that he wouldn't go inside the house. So that was tough for the first half a week. But by then, he was actually old enough to hold it throughout the night. So now he's great. Now he, he goes to sleep with us around 9 o'clock, and he wakes up at 7.30. And he sleeps all night, so that's good. How does he make you hopeful in, in dark times? Well, Charlie's, all he wants to do is just play and love and cuddle. Yeah, no, Charlie just has love for all of us. So Charlie loves me, he loves my wife, he loves my son. And all three of us love him as well. So now there's a lot more love in the house, which is a very good thing. Because independently, we all love Charlie. And um, it's kind of funny. When he first started coming here, he was always just coming to me. And maybe my wife and son were not as happy about that. They, they started showing Charlie a little bit more affection. And then Charlie started coming to them. And then, so yeah, we were all vying for Charlie's affection in the beginning. <laughs> but he, he does love us equally. Now we can kind of tell that comes to all of us so, uh so so it gives he gives everyone a little pick me up now and then yes he gives everyone a pick me up so pretty much when we're kind of had a long day and we're at each other's throat or this or that um charlie comes strolling around the corner and he just gives you his puppy dog eyes and, and 
you just can't help but to uh, just go down on the ground and start, you know, hugging and kissing him. That's all he wants. Have you learned anything from Charlie? No. He's not a teacher? Not a teacher. He's, he's a, he's a, what I've learned is um, he's a baby. So he's got to be treated like a baby. He doesn't know any better. So when he does a mess on the ground or this or that, realize he's just a baby. He doesn't know any better. So you, you're learning patience a little. Yes, patience. Because yeah, I even talked to Charlie and he doesn't understand me. I'm just trying to get him to come. That's all. I'm like, come here, Charlie, come here. And he, and he hardly ever comes. He comes like 10% of the time. So yeah. i got to figure some things out with him. We've got to train him more. And we had yeah. more of a training plan for the puppy, but now with this COVID stuff, it's hard to be out and about and doing all these things or going to see trainers and stuff like that. So yeah. we're just kind of winging it right now. So no regrets? Uh, no regrets, no. Initially, I did have a regret when I was, like, like I said, outside at 4 in the morning and minus 20. But now that we sleep through the night and Charlie's fun, fun guy at night, fun guy in the morning, just wants to play so no regret good good do you think about charlie when you're away from him when like you're not at home well we're not really away from home we're always yeah. at home so but we have thought about the fact that um when we go back to work charlie's not going to know what's happening because he right now he's with us all the time every day when we go to work he's going to have a period of eight hours where he's going to be by himself yeah. So we've actually been told by other people who have dogs that we should be isolating Charlie on his own a few hours a day now, just so that it's not a shock when we get back to regular life. So we, we haven't been diligent enough with that. We need to be putting Charlie away on his own for a few hours a day so he knows what it's like to be alone just by himself. Okay. That's going to be tough because he'll be probably yeah. crying a little. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. So, but we we got to tough it out. we got to do it because sooner or later, he's going to be home a lot by himself. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why we got to have these because they're actually uh, quiet and tempered dogs, and and they they can be okay for a long period of time, just you know, chilling out, not super active dogs. So you'd recommend for people who who have the patience and the inclination, say they're getting really close to pulling the trigger on a puppy, that uh, yeah, it's it's the right move. It it's a pick me yeah. up and it yeah. it it is. Yeah, we Good. none of us have any regrets. We're all happy with him. He was part of the family, like, right away. And, yeah, so Charlie's been, um, you know, he has been a breath of fresh air because, really, he doesn't quarrel with you unless he just needs to go outside to pee or something, or he just needs to play. Like, uh, he's very agreeable, right? He, you want to play fetch, he'll play fetch with you. You just want to cuddle him, he'll cuddle with you. You want to throw something around, you want to just run. He'll just be happy running after you and chasing. He loves to be chased and he loves to chase you. He just wants to be part of, you know, a playful family. When you look in his eyes, man. Oh my God, that's that's tough. They, he has puppy dog eyes and that is actually a thing. When he wants something, when you're cooking food in the kitchen and he knows he's not going to get anything, he'll just come sit in the kitchen and stare at you and he puts on the charm. Every few seconds, those puppy dog eyes get bigger. Sometimes he'll frown and he'll just melt your heart. And I think he knows he has that superpower. And I think most puppies know because they use it. 
to use it. I've talked to other puppy owners and they're like, yep, get used to that look. And even sometimes like, you know, when we're walking, it's overly excited and he's like walking all around my feet. And once or twice I've actually stepped on him by mistake. And, and it's really hard not to do because he's actually getting under your foot. And so this one time I stepped on him and he yelped so loud that the whole neighborhood probably heard it and I felt so bad. And it seemed like I had broken his leg or something. So I picked him up, rushed him home, put him on my lawn and I kind of just petted him. And then within a couple of minutes, he was running around again. So some, some veteran dog owners have told me that puppies can be drama queens too. So yeah. if they're, hurt, they're not really that hurt. They just want that attention and they just want you to know, Hey, I'm hurt. Get back off. So yeah even though he whines and screams sometimes and you feel like, Oh my God, is he going to be okay? He is okay. He's, he's, that's his personality. So how about the future? Um, what, what does the future hold for, for your family and Charlie? Well, we're, we're excited to have Charlie. We've been hiking a lot with Charlie and uh, we're going to continue doing that. And he's just going to be a part of our family and uh, everything going forward. Charlie's going to be involved in. And who knows, maybe one day we'll get a friend for Charlie too. Another puppy. Oh. So we we've, we hear from people around the neighborhood that, you know, they have a dog and then as one dog is getting older, they kind of get a puppy and so then the two dogs play and then maybe as one dog passes, they might get another one. So we'll see. We'll see what we do. We, Charlie's a new experiment for us. He's immediately part of our family. So we'll see what we do going forward. Yeah, let's not think about the passing part. Yeah, now we're just enjoying Charlie. Right on. Uh, any anything else you want to add before we go that uh, uh, I, I think it's, a, it's it's if someone is looking for a puppy and they think they want a puppy I think they can just pull the trigger yeah um, we were hoeing and humming for a long time and all of us are super glad that we pulled the trigger and we, and we actually went through with it it's awesome Hope is an optimistic state of mind. Hope can evoke other positive emotions as well, such as courage, confidence, and happiness. We spoke with four amazing individuals who told their own stories of hope. Marlene spoke with her mother-in-law, Jeanette. Jeanette says she witnessed hope in her husband, Ben. Despite contracting polio at a young age, he went on to continue teaching, get married, have kids, and he considered himself to be a lucky person. Thank you, Jeanette, for this interview. Kennedy interviewed Jenna, who credits Hope to getting her out of a very difficult time in her life. Even though it had got to the point where she felt as though she had nothing in her life worth living for, she felt that having Hope throughout her struggle was what she needed to get to the other side. Now, she feels that Hope has to come from a place of struggle to truly understand what it means. Thank you, Jenna, for this interview. For my interview, I would like to thank Lisa. To her, without Hope, there is no joy. Without Hope, it'd be much harder to get out of bed in the morning. So she strives to have hope even in the toughest of situations. Her job as a paralegal requires her to share that hope with others as well, as they sometimes are dealing with uncomfortable matters during a difficult time in their lives. She feels that hope needs to be spread to others to know that there is brightness on the other end of the darkness. Lastly, Max interviewed Russin on his adventures with his new puppy, Charlie. During these strange times, their family thought a puppy would bring light and joy to their home. Charlie quickly became a part of their family while teaching them all on how to take care of an animal. Charlie has acted as a pillar of hope because he has brought joy and love to them all. Thank you, Russin, for this interview. 
We hope you enjoyed this episode on being hopeful. Thank you for listening.